I've got a message that the Lord has put on my heart, uh, a new series actually we're going to be unpacking uh, together. But it's interesting, before I jump into that, it's interesting, I, I think we, we live in a world where um, everything kind of takes place um, with our computers or our, our tablets or our phones, uh, our different apps, right? It, there's always, I've, I've kind of, I've kind of really learned to despise these, these updates that, that come our way a lot of times. It's, just, it's not that I despise the update. I despise the timing of the update. Doesn't it seem like anytime you're in a rush to do something on your computer or your phone or whatever, an update needs to take place and it prevents you from doing the very thing you need to be doing? A couple of weeks ago, I had a, a Zoom call. It was a very important uh, call. It actually was with, with the president of our denomination. And, uh, you know, it's important to kind of be there on time for that. And so I grabbed my cup of coffee, went on to go online, and I had to update the software for Zoom. I'm like, oh crud, I did not factor that into the equation. And so I begin to do that, but before I could update the software, I had to update a computer update was necessary on my computer. And while I was doing that, there were three other updates that were waiting for this divine moment to take place. And so what ended up happening is my meeting, I ended up getting there 20 minutes late because I couldn't get onto the Zoom call, all because some person on some island somewhere, maybe to justify his job or his existence, thought that I didn't need or I didn't have everything I needed, and so I needed this update on my computer. Very, very frustrating. It was very, very interesting this morning in the first service. I always preach out of my, my notes, my iPad, and this has never happened before. Um, I was trying to get the update, the, my computer to work, and it said I needed an update and it froze on me, and I'm like, I couldn't even pass it off to my other computer to print it up, and so I'm like thinking, oh, you, you gotta be like, the, the, the irony of this event, right? And I ended up getting into, like, into the service of the second song because I was trying to figure out where my notes were gonna be, and so uh, the, it's, it's not the update, it's the timing of the updates, because those of you who know me, I actually do like updates, uh, I like to know that I've got the latest and the greatest and, and like there's something that kind of scratches an itch in me and maybe as being a man, I want to know that I've got the best, uh, you know, and I could do an up update and not even see a difference, right? You ever have those updates? It took forever. You're thinking, what did it do? I, we, we may be surprised one day what it did, but, but I like to just know that I've got, I've got the latest and the greatest. Uh, that being said, <laughs> there are some things that you just don't update. There are some things that an attempt to update changes the very essence of what it really is. This morning, we're gonna begin a new series going through Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. And I'm calling this series, The Gospel. No Updates needed. My phone needs updates. My computer needs updates. My mind needs updates. But the gospel does not need any updates. It is sufficient in of itself. So for the next number of weeks, we're going to be unpacking these six chapters that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. And you'll be interested to see on how relevant that what Paul wrote centuries ago 
is, pertains to our culture today and the church today. Just a little bit of background to gain some context for this letter. Uh, this was written by the Apostle Paul. The opening of the letter affirms that very thing. It's not written to a specific church, but instead a group of churches that existed uh, within Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, really. And, and so it wasn't a specific church, like the church at Ephesus or the church at Colossae. But when we talk about the, there was not a Galatian church, but the churches of Galatia was spread out over that region of modern-day Turkey. And it is to this group of people that Paul is writing this letter. And the letter addresses the most significant theological question that the first generation of Christians faced. That being, how do Jews and Gentiles respond to the gospel of grace, which results in salvation? How does man become reconciled back to God? Was the question that was answered or that was asked so often within that first century. You see, the first Christians were Jewish. And it was assumed that many of the practices and, and ceremonies of the Jews would, would continue to be observed. But as the church began to grow and the church began to expand, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they started to move into Gentile areas, non-Jewish areas, that idea of incorporating the past into our present created a lot of confusion. It created a lot of conversation and it created a lot of conflict amongst the people. Within the church, a group of people that emerged were called Judaizers. And these are those who taught that the gospel of grace required a mixture of the law as well. That we were to take the law of the past, the Jewish laws of the past, and we were to incorporate that into the gospel of grace. Many of the ceremonies and practices, namely circumcision, being one of the critical things that they were saying to the Gentile believers is, listen, if you truly want to be a believer, it was necessary to be circumcised. It was a mixture of the Old Testament law and the New Testament gospel of grace that we see Paul taught. They sought to update the gospel that saved them by adding religious and cultural practices that they observed, and that resulted in a completely different gospel. That was the problem that we saw taking place in that first century church. A mixture of the Old Testament law and the New Testament gospel of grace, it was causing so much confusion. In fact, so convincing was this argument that grown Gentile men would undergo circumcision to ensure their salvation. That's pretty committed. They would mingle in adherence to the law with faith in Christ as a, as a formula of salvation. The law plus faith, which was totally contrary to the gospel of, that, that Paul preached to them, totally contrary to the gospel that they received, the gospel of grace. And as a result of that, it resulted in heresy, it resulted in people deserting the gospel. It resulted in people deserting the faith. And ultimately, it resulted in people deserting the Lord who saved them. 
And so Paul pens this letter with a sense of urgency that is unlike any other letter that he writes in the New Testament. As we go through this, you will see the characteristics of a true shepherd, one that carries a a rod for correction and a staff for guidance. And you will see Paul very intentionally pull that rod of correction out in bringing correction and clarity to the churches in Galatia. While While like a parent that would aggressively pull their child from a burning building. Paul sounds the alarm and he employs a sincere passion, an unapologetic plea for the church to wake up and a return to the gospel that he preached to them, a return to the gospel that they embraced, a return to the gospel the only gospel that saves. And he is passionate about doing that. No other letter in the New Testament will address with clarity, such clarity, the the central place that the gospel holds in the life of the believer. It is not negotiable. The uniqueness of Paul's letter and his opening address to the churches of Galatia, when contrasted to the other letters that Paul penned to the churches, it kind of reveals the urgency with which Paul has on this subject. If you were to do a surface reading of of all of the letters that Paul wrote to the other churches, you'll see that there's a certain style that's consistent with the Apostle Paul. He will often, he'll open up with a greeting to the church, usually something very nice. Oftentimes he'll refer to them as brothers and saints. In fact, every time other than his letter to the church of Thessalonica, he always made reference to them as brothers and saints. And then he would move from the greeting to an opening. And in the opening, he would always include some encouraging words. Let me give you a couple for instances. When he writes to the church at Rome, he writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He writes to the church at Corinth. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus He'll say in the second book to to Corinthians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. When you consider the content that Paul has to address in in the church of Corinth and all of the sin and the decadence that is taking place, even in that environment, he still has a sense of shepherding care that is expressed to them. And writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Colossians, he says, we thank God for you, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. We, we thank God for you. Philippians, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Always in every prayer of mine, I give thanks to God for you. Church of Thessalonica, we give thanks again to God. Second, Second Thessalonians, we ought always to give, God, give thanks to God for you, brethren, 
as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. You can hear the shepherding heart of the Apostle Paul. You hear this care, this nurturing, this affirmation. We see this time and time again in every one of the letters that he writes, except Galatians. Listen to the way he opens up in this opening for Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Unlike every other letter he writes where he is affirming them, Paul opens up this letter to the church of Galatia with a rebuke. He said, I am astonished. It's like he couldn't even wait to get there. Let's just cut to the chase. You blow my mind on how you have deserted him who called you. Additionally, as I said before, when addressing the church in their greetings, oftentimes he would, he would refer to them as brothers and saints. Every single time he used the word saints, except for in Thessalonica and also in Galatians. He doesn't refer to them as brothers and saints. So what's the point? Why, why such a stern introduction to this letter? Because there is no other subject that is so critical, so untouchable, so inflexible, so unalterable than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are touching upon the most sacred. And Paul rises to the task and he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning the gospel of Jesus Christ is the revelation of how man is brought back into right standing with God. And it's directly connected to the coming, the living, the dying, and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there is no update needed. What was happening in Galatia is they were taking that glorious message, that glorious work, and they began to add to it and say it was Jesus plus these things. And Paul said, no, there's no room for that. You cannot bring that to the table of negotiation. There is no update needed. That's why Paul declared with assurance in Romans chapter one, he said, I am, I, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is central to our belief system. It is not open to cultural alignment it is not privy to popular opinion. It doesn't need to be reconciled with the changing culture of our day. You see, what the church in Galatia was doing was they were allowing the culture of their day to influence and change their understanding of the gospel, which changed the very essence of what the gospel is, and Paul is sounding the alarm. And so am I. In this day where truth is being abandoned, 
in this day where truth is relative to everybody's personal opinion. I'm sounding the alarm. We too are living in a day where many in the church are allowing the culture to influence and redefine their theology, which creates this hybrid to the gospel. You say, wait a minute, I don't, I pastor, I don't even have a theology. Yes, you do. Your theology is what you believe about God and yourself and the world around you. You might not call it your theology, but in the end of the day, what you believe about God and yourself and the world around you, which is also always informed by the word of God, that is your theology. And we're living in a day where many in the church are allowing the culture to influence and redefine their theology. And what that does is it creates this, this hybrid of the gospel a hybrid of a gospel that seeks to reconcile what is acceptable and promoted in our culture with what is acceptable and promoted and embraced in the church. If the vast majority of the world believes this, then maybe we need to rethink what we believe in the church is what is happening in our land it is akin to what Paul is addressing in the, to the churches of Galatia and saying these truths are not open for discussion. They are unalterable. That hybrid gospel is not a gospel that saves. It is not a gospel that saves. We are to view the gospel we are not to view, excuse me, we are not to view the gospel through the lens of culture. We are to view culture through the lens of the gospel. We are never to view the gospel through the lens of culture. We are to, we are to view the culture through the lens of of the gospel. The gospel is the starting point. To confuse that order of what lens we allow truth to be determined will result in a confusion of the gospel and will result in a departure from the gospel, which is what the overriding purpose of this letter that Paul writes is all about. The enemy is very subtle if he can get a Christian to begin to question truth, he can get in there, and Paul addresses this, we'll touch this more later on, but he will begin to get you to question truth. That's what he did to Eve in the garden. Eve's gospel was very clear, just obey God. Enjoy the world that God's given to you, just don't eat of the tree. There's your gospel right there. And the first thing the enemy does is he comes in and tries to get her to question what God said. Did God really say you shall not eat of the tree? He's afraid that if you eat of the tree, you'll be like he is. And it begins to sow into her thinking this idea that God is withholding, that God's word is not sufficient, that God's plan doesn't, make, doesn't, doesn't measure up. 
And the moment she moves from questioning God's word to disobeying God's word. And that's exactly what happens in the church. You see, if we don't know the word, then a lot of times we don't even know if we're violating God's word. That's why I've said to you from the moment we started this church, don't ever be the kind of Christian that doesn't have an understanding of what God's word is. Don't allow what happens on a Sunday morning to be your only experience in God's word. You must know the truth for yourself because the enemy is always trying to twist truth. And that's what happened in the church of Galatia. They twisted truth. And so we begin our journey through Paul's letter to the church of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me. Paul opens up with such a firm affirmation of his calling, not because Paul is on some power trip, that, that Paul was looking for a pat on the back or needed, like it was into titles, but, but because Paul was being called into question oftentimes about the authority he had as an apostle. Partly because he didn't walk with Jesus as did, some, as did the other apostles, but also and more specifically because of Paul's prior career. Before coming to Christ, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was a zealous Pharisee that persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And then he got saved. And now he's promoting this very gospel for which he persecuted other people for. And so Paul was oftentimes having to, to, to communicate to those who were listening that God is the one who called me. And you see, here is really what was going on. If you could undermine the authority of Paul's position, then you can undermine the authority of what Paul had to say. You see, if you could dismiss him as an apostle, then you can dismiss what he is called and calling people to. And so everywhere Paul went, there was questions as to his authority as an apostle. And so Paul held his ground by, by saying, listen, I'm not here by popular opinion. I'm not here because there was a gathering of leaders and they gave me the, the official nod as an apostle. I'm not here from man or through man, but by God himself and affirmed by the brothers who are with me. He stood his ground as an apostle of God. Let's take note, take note of his greeting here. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As I mentioned before, what's absent here is the affirmation of who they were and how they were doing. There's the, the affirmation that they're brothers and saints of God. He just kind of goes right for it. In fact, what Paul's doing here in this opening, he's kind of setting the stage as to where they're, he's going to be going in this letter. He kind of shows his cards, if you will, as to the overall content of the letter. Verse 4 demonstrate that there is, demonstrates that there's no other system 
There's no other sacrifice, no other practice that is able to cover our sins and thereby deliver us from this present evil age. None other than Christ willingly sacrificing himself. Look, he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. In other words, the only way you'll be delivered from this present evil age, the only way that you will be delivered from your sins has been accomplished by the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This verse serves as the summary of the entire message that he will write all throughout the book of Galatians. How does a man or woman come into right standing with God? Only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. How does a man or woman come into right standing with God only by the blood of Jesus Christ? There is no system. There is no church. There are no sacraments. There are no ordinances. There is no pastor or organization that can give you the grace that you need so that you might get saved. Everything has been done by Jesus Christ on the cross when he shed his blood for you. His blood is sufficient. Efficient. No update needed. The hymn writer writes, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of Christ, the blood he shed, the offering of himself on the cross that is the only means by which man can come into right standing with God. There is no system. If there was any other way if there was any other way of man being reconciled back to God, Jesus would have never had to come. But the work of Christ levels the playing field for each and every one of us. And it is only by his gracious work that he freely gave of himself that you and I can stand with confidence and assurance in knowing that he completed for me that which I can never accomplish myself. And this church in Galatia was departing from that message that he made so clear to them. If I might inject some emotion into this, I imagine that as Paul appended these words and recalled how clearly he articulated that precious gospel to which they once received, I'm sure he felt the pangs of their, of their departure deep in his soul as he declared, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some 
who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice the connection that Paul makes. They weren't deserting Paul. They weren't deserting some religion. They weren't deserting some social club that they belonged. He said, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you. You see, to turn from the gospel is to turn from Jesus himself. To turn from the, 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 the plan of salvation that has been provided and secured in Jesus Christ is to turn from Jesus himself. Apart from a church, apart, sometimes people's view of God gets so jaded by the church and by the religious community and all of the expectations and experiences that they've had with him, who, whatever, people. Christ has made it possible for each and every one of us to be reconciled to God by coming living, dying on the cross for us. They weren't deserting Paul. They were deserting him who called them. They were turning from Jesus. And he says, you're turning to a, a different gospel. They were allowing their culture to influence the way they saw the gospel. Instead of allowing the gospel to influence the way they saw the culture, they allowed themselves to be deceived because they allowed them, they began to look at the gospel through the lens of their culture and thought, hey, everybody's believing it. Surely this is the popular opinion of the day. And they embraced a, a different gospel. Notice he says you're turning to a, a different one. Not that there is one, not that there is another gospel. In other words, he's saying it's not as if you're turning to an, an equal alternative or an offshoot of the original gospel. What you're embracing is a foreign gospel, churches in Galatia. What you're embracing is a counterfeit gospel, churches of Galatia. What you're embracing is a pseudo gospel that mingles truth and error, thereby making it a completely different gospel, therefore a gospel that does not save. One that will not reconcile you back to God. You might feel good. You might enjoy the popularity. You might get the goosebumps. But in the end of the day, what is, it is not securing your place, your right standing in God. When the teachings of Christ are looked at through the lens of culture, instead of looking at the culture through the lens of the teachings of Christ, you get a distorted teaching. And it doesn't matter who is the one saying it? It doesn't matter how nice they sound. It matters not how educated they are or how enlightened they appear to be or how charismatic their personality. Whether that teacher be me or anybody else you dial into on the internet, listen to what Paul says, but even if we 
or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. What Paul is saying to the, to the church that is responding to these lies, the, those brothers, quote unquote, who come in and created confusion, He's saying, listen, if anybody, I don't care how close to you they are, if they are coming in and they're teaching you any other gospel contrary to what I've taught you, in fact, if an angel from heaven comes and they preach any other gospel other than what I've preached to you, he says, let them be accursed. Paul reserves his most harsh condemnation for those who would distort the gospel of Christ by, use, by his use of this word, anathema, in the Greek. Translated cursed in the English. Only used four or five times in the New Testament, this word anathema is the strongest of curses that could come upon a person. It is a curse that declares, and it's an eternal curse upon a person without the possibility of redemption. Here's one that you'll rarely hear me say. The NIV properly translates that word. <laughs> Let him be eternally condemned. Let him be eternally condemned. That strong word used again four or five times. Why such strong words? Because to embrace any other gospel apart from the gospel of grace doesn't get you over to the other side. Remember Jesus said, many are going to say to me, Lord, didn't we, do, didn't we cast out devils in your name? And, and didn't, we, didn't we do all these mighty works in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. Why? Because they have mingled some of these truths with error and it resulted in a gospel that does not save. It's quite an opening that Paul presents. There is no other subject matter that he will more fiercely defend than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He makes no apologies about it and nor do I. He will be willing to die on that hill, and he does. But he models for us what our commitment to the gospel ought to be. Paul demonstrates through his life and through his words that regardless of the reaction of the world around you, the gospel can never be negotiated. The gospel can never be tweaked. The gospel can never be altered to make it more palatable for a changing culture. When we do that, it is a different gospel. And it is not a gospel that saves does that mean that our embracing of the gospel should alienate us from people and the world around us? God forbid. The gospel calls us to go into the world, but not to be a part of the world. To be different. To be ambassadors for Christ. A proper view of our culture through the lens of the gospel will enable us to love all people 
the way Jesus would. A proper view of our culture through the lens of the gospel will enable us to uphold the dignity of all people that are made in the image of God and will equip us to lovingly yet intentionally present the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. I don't need outside sources to inform me how to address many of the dilemmas in our culture today. The gospel is sufficient. And it tells me and shows me and calls me how to love all people that agree with me and disagree with me, that are different than I am or not. But you don't believe and behave like the world with the hopes of influencing the world. If your goal is to influence the world, you don't behave and believe like the world. That only results in the fact that you've been influenced by the world. We are to influence the world around us. Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. The church is the hope of the world and as dark, listen, as dark as the world may get, it creates the opportunity for the church to shine the brightest. But we will not shine bright because of our charisma. We will not shine bright because we can sing really well. We will not shine bright for anything we can offer other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the world. That is what we have been commissioned by God to bring to the world around us. And that's why Paul was able to say, I'm not ashamed of that, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And why do we do that? We do that out of a love for Jesus and a love for what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves people. We do have a heart and a desire to, to please God. That's how Paul closes this section. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Now, some, many commentators said what was happening at that point is people were questioning what motivated Paul. And he said, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would be a servant of Christ. May we as recipients of the gospel of grace. May we, may we hold tightly to it. May we examine our own hearts. Because if you're not intentional about looking to see how you've allowed the culture to influence your theology, it can very easily become um, a, a drift in that direction. In these next number of weeks, we are going to look not out at them out there. I'm going to look right here at me. I'm going to look and see how have I allowed my culture to influence my view of the gospel. Because as Paul lays out, as we go through the book of Galatians, he will demonstrate that how our embracing of the gospel affects how we live our life. See, I could say I embrace it. But if my life does not align with this called to Christianity, then I got to make some changes in my life. And I can't do that for you. And I'm not going to, that's the Holy Spirit's job in each and every one of us. 
And so I pray that the Lord would use his word to transform us, to open our eyes to ways in which we have subtly been influenced by the world around us so that we might greatly be able to be used by God and walk in the blessings of God. Father, thank you for your word. It indeed is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, our path as the psalmist declares. We thank you that, Lord, in a changing world, your word changes not. It need not change because it is sufficient. It is able to address every dilemma, every bit of information we need on how to live and how to think and how to believe. You address it all. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow the words of uh, these words of God continue to transform our thinking. We thank you. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.